Today's episode of the Open Pantry Podcast is brought to you by me, Sean from Open Pantry Consulting. Make sure if you're opening a restaurant or starting to scale your restaurant that you come and check out what I'm doing at openpantryconsulting.com. Everything around operations analysis, recruitment, or data analytics. Everything to get your restaurant, cafe, or bakery on the better side of this crisis. Let's keep going with the show. Welcome to another podcast, but before we get into it, I really want to talk to you about Restoke, which is a revolutionary back-of-house automation platform, which is purpose-built for hospitality and developed with one core belief in mind, that is that time is a business owner's most valuable asset and it should be reclaimed using tech and data. And you know how much we've been talking about that over the last few months since the crisis of COVID. Tech and data is so important for hospitality owners moving forward. The Restoke team have set out to make sure that your restaurant runs smoother with better operations and an easy-to-use setup and platform that's beneficial for both single-site and multi-location organizations. At the end of the podcast, tune in for a second little bit of this episode and we'll talk about how you can get Restoke in your venue with a special subscription offer. But for now, let's get into the program. Welcome to another Open Pantry podcast. It's so good to have you on the show. So thanks for tuning in. As you would know by now, one of my most important topics that I've talked about this year has been talking about supply chain and food insecurity. So it's a pleasure to have our next guest on from an organization called SDG2 Advocacy Hub, which is bringing together NGOs, agricultural networks, nutritionists, campaigners, civil society and private sector and... UN agencies to coordinate advocacy efforts and achieve this by 2030. We're actually going to ask our next guest what the hell that even means. It, but it is really ambitious because they have promised to end hunger, achieve food security and improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. It's great to have Paul Newham, on, uh, the director of this great advocacy hub on the program today. So welcome, Paul. Thanks so much for, um, thanks so much for being a guest. It's great to have you on. No, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's great to uh, be on. So, awesome. yeah. So, um, so let's talk about, let's maybe talk about first what SDG2 actually means um, to start out with. But I'd, I'd love you to talk about your career as well. Because when we, when we first got chatting a couple of months ago, it was a conversation which I knew was going to be good, but I was, um, I was blown away by your career and the effort that you are doing um, for food and security uh, for food security around the world and and um, yeah it was just really really enlightening conversation so let's talk about what what that actually means and how you actually started out yeah absolutely so I mean it is uh, a bit of a mouthful SCG mm. to advocacy hub mm-hmm. um, and and that was partly intentional um, mm-hmm. you know we didn't we, we are a network we're running a network which sits behind many of the organizations to help them to be effective and mm. so um, you don't necessarily then want to create a very catchy brand that everyone kind of starts using because then that undermines the network that you're actually trying to um, drive forward yeah. so um, but first I think it's important just to kind of frame up what the SDGs are yes so um, essentially the this is a set of goals that was established in 2015. Um, there's actually 17 of these goals. Mm-hmm. And so SDG two is one of the 17. Right. Um, and uh, these goals were created um, at the United Nations and mm-hmm. signed by every country of the world in the world. And, and basically the way I, I kind of describe it is it's a plan that the world leaders all got together on mm-hmm. to say, here's the agenda globally for the next 15 years of all the things we really need to work on together. Yes. And so it covers things around, you know, poverty, 
um, food issues, gender, mm-hmm. um, environment, climate change, mm-hmm. urbanization, energy. So it goes into all these kinds of areas. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this is not the first time the world's done this. In, in the year 2000, they created a thing called the Millennium Development Goals. Right. The Millennium Development Goals um, were a set of goals to try and help bring together that agenda. Yes. And they went for 15 years. But in 2015, they decided we, we've learned some stuff from that first 15 years. Some mm-hmm. things we hit, some things we didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, let's reset them, but let's look at them as an integrated um, connection of issues. Because mm-hmm. what, what they learned was that you can't just solve one issue without it kind of causing unintended consequences on others. And yeah, so there's this interrelationship. Mm-hmm. And that also an issue like, so sustainable development goal two is all around food, agriculture, nutrition, biodiversity, mm-hmm. but the tagline zero hunger and, and it's not just zero hunger. And mm. so what they also realized is that you can solve a problem, but you can also create others. And so you have to have integrated targets mm-hmm. under each of these goals that can be measurable to ensure that we end up with the right kind of development. And right. so, Essentially, that's this big framework. It's worth checking out. It's called the Sustainable Development Goals. You can mm-hmm. type it into Google or the other way it's sometimes referred to as the Global Goals. Okay. And so, and that's a little more accessible. That's kind of a whole piece of work that's been done to kind of help make that accessible. And so I got into this. Um, so I, I uh, grew up in Melbourne mm-hmm. um, and, and, and had parents that lived and worked all around the world. So I was in, in Asia and Africa as a child and, so kind of grew up with this kind of worldview and yeah. um, at initially out of school, wasn't quite sure what to do, ended up um, doing an arts degree at Monash, which is a good start starting point for anyone who's not sure what to do. Yes. Um, and uh, studied Indigenous studies and world religion. And wow. Really, really interesting, <laughs> but career path, very complicated. <laughs> yes. Um, so started out in that space, um, ended up then uh, doing that and, and a, a range of other things. Ended up working uh, into, particularly with young people, on engaging them about global issues. I ended up at World Vision mm-hmm. um, and I worked there for a number of years on things like the 40-hour famine yeah. um, and then moved around within World Vision uh, into kind of the communication. I studied then development at RMIT. I did a whole range of other stuff. And then ended up working on the communications marketing side, which was always like a paradox for me because mm. I was always about the programming side, but then I'd get offered jobs on the other side. Yeah. Um, and so worked, worked through that in different roles um, in different parts of the world. And really, I suppose, um, saw lots of great work, lots of innovation, lots of um, complex challenges that were out there and tried to work on how do we how do we work through that Mm -hmm. um working with communities and 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 community development as a as a a space is essentially learning how do you help communities discover answers to their own problems yes so So there's self-sufficiency in a way yeah yeah Mm. so you go to university and you kind of it's about getting slapped you know like so you sit in your classes and you sort of try and go i know what you should do and then they're like slap (laughs) No, you don't. Um, you don't know about this context or this yeah. culture or this. And so it's more about then going, how do you sit with a community, listen, mm-hmm. engage, and help them uncover things that maybe are solutions to their own problems yeah. and connect them with resource and opportunity or help them problem solve how to take them to scale. Mm-hmm. And so it, it kind of, I did a lot of that. And that makes you kind of quite reflective and, yeah. and, and, and also about how do you, connect dots fast forward i kind of ended up living and working in all different parts of the world um in latin america in east africa in Mm -hmm. europe in north america Mm -hmm. um lived in in different parts as well and about 2016 i decided look i've been working for world vision in different roles for a long time inside Mm -hmm. and outside the organization like doing the innovative edge um trying to kind of stretch and shift Mm-hmm. thing and then also outside um and i was like i need to probably just take a bit of a reset and say where am i going am i going to stay here forever it's a very big organization and there's a lot yeah. to do yes or do i do something different and so i was i said okay i'm going to take the jump and i'm going to jump out and the plan was to travel for a year ended up 13 days later working in rome with the world food program um doing a consultancy there 
And um, that kind of opened this whole new pathway. Um, we started working with some chefs in Peru, mm-hmm. um, Gaston Acurio. We started working on anemia with the president and this kind of like, how do we address these issues through working with people on the culinary side? Yes. And, and then I went back into Rome and they said, would you be interested in helping, given your experience, work on setting up this network? Mm-hmm. to really accelerate how we work forward. They said, basically, there's a lot of great technical work going on. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good policy work. But this food system conversation is not necessarily um, breaking through at the top level. It, it kind of doesn't necessarily mainstream. And this was back mm-hmm. 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, issues like water, you know, uh, gender, diversity. You know, there's lots of other issues out there mm-hmm. um, around you know, health and other things that are kind of breaking through on the global level. But, you know, food and agriculture nutrition is always kind of not quite getting there. Yes. So how do we think about that differently? And so we basically sat down, I I moved to the UK Mm -hmm. um, and had to sort of set up this startup um, to try and bring together these big organizations Mm -hmm. into some sort of convening, coordinating, coalescing kind of group. Mm-hmm. Um, we incubated under a UN agency, which, to be honest, if is not the easiest thing. You know, UN agencies can be quite bureaucratic. They they deal with governments. Um, yeah, right. They deal at that level, mm-hmm. and so trying to kind of register domain names and things like that when you're kind of like a little startup, there's a lot of process to go through. Right. Um, but it was good. I mean, it was good learning. Yes. Um, and so anyway, we 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 launched that and 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 got it going. And so the network now has been going for a good years, four years and uh, is growing. And so we have, we bring together people into conversations. Mm-hmm. We've kind of developed narratives and, and move that forward. And mm-hmm. we've done built a chef's network as part of that called the Chef's Manifesto, mm-hmm. which was looking at a framework for how chefs can engage in the sustainable development goals. And so that's now in 80 countries and, you know, things are continue to grow. So it's, it's been a journey. It's been an absolute journey. Um, out of all the, I'm not sure if I asked you this last time we spoke. Um, but of all the countries you've you know lived and worked in, has there is is there kind of a favourite that stands out? Is there is there is there a culture? Is there a people which just resonates with you more than more than anyone else? Or is it sort of does that sort of change? Or do you constantly have like a top three of like places that you've lived that you love the most? Or yeah, it's an it's a good question. Um, I mean, there's uh, what I suppose I've come to like different places for different reasons. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's mainly because you get familiar with them. Like I always reflect on this idea of it's so it's such a weird world we live in, yes. where you know you have local neighborhood favorites and mm. walking tracks and in in random cities around the world, and yes. sometimes they're random neighborhoods of cities mm-hmm. that for some reason there was an office there a hotel you liked a friend you met and you kind of got to know that community in a different way yes and so there's a number of places like that where i would go regularly back to mm-hmm. over time working on projects mm-hmm. and so depending on the city like um i spent quite a bit of time in nairobi for example mm-hmm. and i um, really enjoyed this part of nairobi I'm on the outskirts and I kind of got to know the local restaurants, the local parks, you know, met people in different places. And I'm a bit of a creature of habit when I travel because Mm. like if I find a place that works for me, I just want to keep going back there. I just don't want to go try a new hotel every time or whatever. Yeah, completely. And so it's just easy and familiar and you kind of know what you're getting into um, when change is happening all the time. So you know, Nairobi, Nairobi's got a special place in my heart. Um, Lebanon's also a really interesting place. I really enjoyed my time in Lebanon. I think it was the people and the culture and the food yes. all combined. Yes. Um, Lebanon's very intense, like in Beirut particularly. It's a, it's a very intense city, but it's also very multicultural, similar to Melbourne in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you have all different faiths, all different cultures, all kind of meshed in yes. this very intense space. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, you know, a very challenged space. You know, people have been very generous with refugees. They have some of the most refugees of anywhere in the world at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it has kind of some quite challenging, harsh, in-your-face realities to deal with. Um, 
but then you you see how people gather as families and friends around you know iftar and and food mm. and you know and 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 celebrate and it's just amazing and it's beautiful yeah. and it's human you know so i mean that's that's i love that um yeah there's lots of other places um you know i i've i've lived in the uk so london's an, an amazing city and there's some great spots in london um new york i've spent a lot of time in but then you know places you know um in you know the middle of nowhere that also you kind of get familiar with you know yes. the coast of kenya i've spent quite a bit of time and you kind of have friends there that I went and saw every three months. And so you kind of build these relationships and it's just an odd place. You'd probably yes, never you wouldn't go think there about unless you it. were yes. doing, mm. yeah, it's not big on the tourist destination mm. yet, but mm. it probably will be in the future. You, know, mm. so. you, you talked a bit, um, you said just before how things like water, you know, and diversity and stuff weren't really cutting through sort of at the top level. Do you, yeah. you would have a distinct understanding as to why that is is it is it because is it because there's some bureaucracy there or or you know what are the what are the challenges and why you know we are setting these amazing targets every 15 years and and trying to push the needle you know even further but at some points it's not it's not coming cutting through at the top level do you have any understanding as to why that is yeah, I mean, look, there's there's lots of reasons why um, issues don't come through. I think sometimes it's clarity of message. Mm. So you have within sectors, especially that get very technical. Yes. There's a difference. So the political realities that we find ourselves in now in most parts of the world mm. um, require a kind of different engagement. So it used to be good policy was what drove governments on both sides of the fence to make decisions yes so and good policy was based on science it was based on generally agreed fact fact yeah um and we now live in a world where fact science everything is questioned everything is up for grab and it mm. grabs and everything can be pulled apart yes. and you can see a, a reasonably a reasonable thread mm -hmm. to justify most positions on both sides. You know, the media, you know, really shapes this social yes. media, mm -hmm. you know, the echo chamber that we can find ourselves in through algorithms and, mm -hmm. you know, all of this. Yes. And so within that world that we find ourselves in politics is no different. Mm. So when you come to the top level of politics, you have leaders who have to really react to the public opinion. Yes. And public opinion that's not like we did a study, we called 100,000 100, households and we did a study and a week later we published it. It's yes. public opinion that is live on Twitter, trending based on disapproval of what someone said five mm. minutes ago. Mm -hmm. And within that world, there's a lot of um, ways to manipulate the story. Yes. And so issues then become hard to actually get to the bottom of. Mm. And so when you have technical answers to complex problems, yes, it's hard for them to cut through. Mm. And, and so, you know, people misunderstand science, they don't trust it, they question it, they kind of take a Facebook post as as credible as like the head of CSIRO, you know, yes. and it's like, yep really you know, that person went to you know study for and i don't know the head of crsiro's yes. um cv but my assumption is they're expert level mm -hmm. and they have great science yes um and so you know i think part of the challenge we face is to communicate in ways that bring in everyday people mm. to solutions that can connect to multiple issues yes so Yep. For example, if we, there's a lot of work on food where you kind of debate and people are now really excited about the connections with climate, you know, yep. so they understand that how we eat and what we eat, not everyone mm. has a, di a direct correlation to the environment and climate. Yes. And so if you believe in climate change, which is also an up for grabs mm -hmm. kind of conversation in some markets, mm -hmm. um, if you believe on in climate change, then you go, it's very plausible that the way we produce food on mass probably has some impact on that. Mm. 
Yes. So thus me, I can make choices around what I do about it. Mm. Um, and so some people will then go, okay, climate, food connection, that makes sense. And that's mm. starting to come, you know, whereas like at the climate action summits at the, the global level, food is now starting to be discussed as a contributor. And like right. there was a study that came out in, in, um, in one of the top science magazines just recently, which said, you know, if we cut our emissions, cut all our emissions, like down to almost zero, we still don't hit the Paris agreement unless we address our food system. It's yeah, actually right. our food system has one of the biggest impacts on our climate Interesting. in its current form. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of then make some of these connections, but then some of the reactions to fighting climate change are focused just on better for planet. Yes. And then they don't think about the human health element. Yes. And human health 100%. is also in crisis. Mm. So in the space that I'm in, you know, um, we talk a lot about like the hard issue is, you know, there's, there's over 800 million people that go to bed hungry without the right nutrients in a world that produces enough food to feed one and a half times the planet. Yes. Made food, depending on who's doing the study. Yeah. Um, but then you've got 2 billion people facing some form of, in, of food insecurity. Mm. And then yet we waste huge amounts of food. Mm. And then also in certain areas where we've been seeing some declines in some of the hunger in certain countries, but then we've seen obesity levels and overweight yeah. move up at double the speed. Yes. So we're kind of doing this kind of going, creating another problem. Mm. So you, you kind of see these, these are complex problems mm. and human health, like what's good for people and what's good for the planet and yes. sometimes not being lined up. So one of the things we're doing is going, how do you create good food for all? How do you create a, a, a platform and define what food is that what's good about food? Well, food mm. can be good for people and it can be good for our planet. Yes. And if we do that in a way that's also, based on technical science so there's science that proves all of this yes you know like what nutritional makeup we should have that we should eat more diverse diets i mean mm. this has been going on forever yes and yet our diets become less diverse you know i mm. think four crops now make up 60 percent of all combined calories that everyone eats in the world well wow. you know so you've got this, you know, huge, as the food systems improved, our yep. diversity has gone down in what we eat. There's mm. like 30,000 edible plants in the world. And we eat 150 um, in the majority of our diets. <laughs> now, if you think about it, you know, I was doing something on one of these health apps and they were asking me how many veggies I eat each day. And, you know, I'm like, I think you have to eat more than five. I'm eating like 15, but you know, that's wow. because we've changed the way we do it, you know, yes. but yeah. I'm even thinking about that and going, well, that's not that diverse. You know, that's a lot for yes. your refrigerator in suburban Melbourne to sure. kind of have 15 to 20 different ingredients there. Yeah. But in the grand but scheme of things, yeah. When there's 30,000 in the world, what am I missing out on? You know, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and so there's things like this where connecting the technical to the, the public narrative mm. to then a political narrative that like a minister of finance, a, um, minister, you know, the prime minister can yep. kind of deal with, yep. you either relegate yourself to like the agriculture and the health minister and in health, like nutrition and food, it's tiny. Like yeah. they deal with so many other issues. You know, yeah. I think in most countries, doctors don't have, they have zero to, to 10 days on nutrition. Mm. So nutrition, even though food is one of the biggest contributors to non-communicable disease, cancer rates, all these kinds of things, Doctors, the, the connection between nutrition and food and health is very limited and not, not necessarily at the level it should. So there's lots of these kinds of issues that mm. I think even just what I'm explaining is it's just so complex. Yeah, exactly. Do, do, you think, do you think Western countries especially understand food insecurity? Because, I mean, it is so bountiful. In, in countries like ours, like, do you think we really get it and understand what food uh, food insecurity for people around the world actually is? So I think increasingly, yes. Mm. But I think what there is is greater um, inequality within countries. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at most places around the world since the COVID-19 um, uh, issue, you would see number of people that feel 
so there was a study done by the Food and Agriculture Organization every year that's called the SOFI Report. And one of the things they've done in the last two or three years is a new component, which is about perceived in food insecurity. So it, it's like asking people, surveying en masse mm-hmm. at every country level, how do you, do you feel you have food security? So it's more of a perception. Yes. But what that shows is that there is actually more insecurity than we think. And like, I mean, I was watching something on the SBS just the other day mm. about food insecurity in Australia. And, mm-hmm. you know, there were people talking about, you know, there was a couple of examples of a mother who um, had four kids, unemployed, um, trying, you know, and she was sort of talking about having like $100, mm. $119 a fortnight to feed Shit. five to six people. And, you know, out of that, she had to pay back a small loan that she had at zero interest for a computer, for a kid that needed it for school, from the Salvation Army, you know. And so you look at that and, 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 and so the presenter was saying, so what do you eat? And they said, well, it's UHT milk right. and it's wheat bits. Right. And that's essentially all we can get. You know, that's kind of enough to give us the calories that we need to kind of function. Right. Others that, and, you know, she said, I keep applying for jobs, but I'm, you know, in my forties, um, it's more of a challenge competing at McDonald's with people that are 17. Yep. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a weird world. So I would say, I would say for the majority of people, they have no idea. Yep. Depending on their, where they are in a society. So I think there's much more discrepancy in a society. I'd say somewhere like the U S um, you know, homelessness is way more visible now. Um, Unemployment has gone through the roof. You know, you're seeing lines at food banks that go, and that's the same. I mean, Australia's not that different. If Mm. you talk to certain groups, you know, with Oz Harvest and other, other groups that are out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, um, yeah, you've got lots of um, discrepancies around the inequality margins. What do you, what do you think we can do that? Maybe explain what, you know, you're doing to to try and help change that. But like maybe maybe we'll talk about that first. I want to talk about what we can what people listening to this can do. But like let's talk about, you know, what you're doing to to help change that because I know you're doing so much, Paul. Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of there's a range of things that we're working on. Um so we at one level are working to kind of help connect the dots so we believe that if you have a a more joined up conversation consistently Mm. um based on agreed science Mm. using similar language then you're going to have better chance of getting your message across to the public but also to governments and decision makers and that's also private sector which have a big role to play here Mm. so it's a consistency and a connecting, you know, and so we do that through creating narratives, through creating forums, through creating dialogues that push the envelope, but then also work behind the scenes on strategy, on coaching, on all kinds of things. Yes. Um, in terms of what's going on this coming year, there's, um, so as we go into 2021, um, there's some really big moments that are coming up to try and drive this. Mm-hmm. So um, the Secretary General last year called for a UN food system summit. Okay. Um, and so Antonio Gutierrez has it's calling for this summit, similar to the climate summit that happened last year. Mm-hmm. That's a high level summit to bring together governments to say, we need to address um, look at food systems as a way of addressing our overall development agenda and the issues in the world. Yep. And the idea of this is to accelerate new initiatives, mm-hmm. game-changing ideas that can be taken at scale, um, to stimulate a dialogue and a, a, a discussion around food systems as a as an avenue to bring about change. Yes. And so this has been called, it's going to be happening in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be in a couple of different parts, the actual physical gatherings, depending on um, the current reality, but it's going to be in the second half of the year. So the high level meeting will be in September alongside the UN General Assembly with heads of state. Wow. Um, and then there'll be a more technical meeting in Italy um, at the end of their summer um, mm-hmm. leading into that. But it's a conversation that started now. And so there's different streams being run to Mm -hmm. 
feed into this. So there's a science group that's been convened to look at the science. And there's people from all over the world, including in Australia, mm -hmm. in that science technical group. Cool. Then there's um, a thing called the, the UN Food System Summit Dialogues, which are being convened. And these are discussions happening in every country in the world in different formats. One will be convened by go at a government level, like a national level, yep. that will be to talk about what can we do in our, in our country. Mm -hmm. There'll then be dialogues that happen around global events, which are more in between countries. Yes. And then there'll also be a toolkit for people to run their own dialogues. Mm -hmm. So um, if you want to, you know, you host a community, a network or whatever, you could host a dialogue. And if you do it in the right way, it, the outputs will be fed into this process. Right, I see. Um, and then the last bit is there, well, there's, there's two last bits. Um, one is they've created a, uh, some action tracks around key areas or key groups or things that they believe can change. And so one of them is like around shifting um, consumption habits and the way, you know, another's around good food for all and, and, mm -hmm. and food for all and how do we address some of the hunger. There's something around livelihoods. There's something around nature positive production, mm -hmm. you know. And so then within that, there's groups of people working on what are the solutions? What are the discussions? What are the ideas? And there's public forums to engage and all kinds of elements there. Yeah. So I think that is going to be a key moment next year. And it's a key moment for anyone to engage in. Yes. You can go online, you can share your ideas. Um, they're looking for food system heroes mm -hmm. um, at the local level that can do things in their local community, but also raise the awareness of this conversation that food, our food system is broken. Well, it functions in a way that is, is not good for the planet or yes. us. Yes. And so we need to reform that in a way that actually contributes to the kind of world we want to live in and the kind of human health and planetary health that we want. And so that involves local, national, global change. Um, so there's that, there's a whole range of other stuff, but I think, you know, you were asking about individual levels. So how does that work? And I think, you know, at the individual level, it's about connecting choices. You know, I can talk about what that's meant for me. Obviously I work on this stuff, but you know, there's a, I believe there's a strong connection point between what you talk about and advocate on and the integrity you have in the choices you make yourself. Absolutely. Like there's no point going out there telling people you should be doing this and then yes. you go and don't do it. Mm. So, you know, I, one of the things I um, have learned through talking to a lot of scientists is that there's certain parts of the world where diets have to shift. Mm. Um, the, the way that we eat and what we eat is out of whack with our share. Okay. So, you know, in certain parts of the world, for example, on animal-based proteins, um, certain countries, Europe, North America, Australia probably fits into it, New Zealand, yes. eat way too much animal-based proteins for their fair share of a planet. So if everyone yep. caught up to what we eat proportionally, yes. the planet blows up, you know, it overheats because we can't, you know, protect our environment as well as, so then we, there's one of two things. We either need to reduce what we eat so others can have some yep. or we need to shift what we do. So my view is, you know, there's some parts of the world where people need some of the animal-based proteins because they need the nutritional makeup. They yep. need that. So we need to eat less. We just need to shrink what we eat. And mm -hmm. so, you know, a choice we've made is to go plant-based on the whole. Mm -hmm. We'll occasionally have some fish, occasionally have something, you know, it's not, um, we're not militant about it, yes. but we've just reduced re dramatically. So whenever we will always choose plant-based dishes, we will always cook plant-based dishes. Yes. And people say that's like super complex when you've got a family, like we've got four kids. It's actually not at all. It's actually mm. super easy. You yes. just, we, the kids have meat maybe two, two nights a week yep. um, of some sort. They used to have it six nights a week, yes. you know, but then other things we just shift. It's just a shift. And then we also, I think one of the science, you know, is build diversity. So how do we build diversity into our diets? We eat way more seeds and nuts, way more leafy greens, way more different vegetables. How do you source that? You try and, you know, um, organic is great and I'm a big believer in it, but it's also not accessible for everyone. Yes. So we're, we 
prefer to find things that are organic that mm. are also affordable mm. um it's not key, we try it? and find ways to buy stuff locally mm-hmm. um we try and work on knowing where our food comes from and educating people about it you yeah. know we've just moved back to australia we've got vegetables all in the garden going crazy at the moment and Amazing. hopefully if the possums don't get them you know we're going to be <laughs> in good shape um to you know supplement our and I think growing food is a really important thing individuals can do because it creates food empathy. You understand then what farmers put into it. You understand the process of where food comes from. Yes. Um, and so you then have a very different engagement with it. If you're composting, you know, that captures carbon. Like people don't realize, but that actually puts carbon back in the soil, which yes. is really important. Mm for um, us all to do in different ways. And it's so simple and it's kind of fun. Like you can kind of get compost and do that at the local level. Sure, you've got a green bin. Sure, the council does that. But, you know, you can do that even in a small apartment with a little mini work. You know, there's all these kinds of things and soil is so critical. Mm. So there's lots of things we can do. We can then also support and use our voice to support, you know, calling on things to be better for people and planet. And I think then make choices also at the supermarket around what do we buy mm. and, and that's getting educated a little bit it's yes. like looking at labels it's understanding what's there mm-hmm. um, it's very easy to get on bandwagons on this you know and not really understand it like you know palm oil is bad so all palm oil we write off well then you go to nigeria and you talk to someone and they go local communities are now not eating you know red palm oil which has got nothing to do with orangutans because there's no orangutans in nigeria and it's it's very healthy and all of a sudden they think they're going to harm the orangutans through eating some indigenously grown native you know palm oil that they've had for years Mm. so you've got to understand the complexities of our food system and so part of it is is reading educating um you know there's lots of cool books out there to read um I'm just thinking of what I've been reading. Um, one that I read is B. Wilson's um, The Way We Eat Now. Yep. Um, B's really interesting about just how do you think about that. Um, Caroline Steele writes some really good books that connect kind of history of food and then the reality. Um, there's like, this is another one that I'm reading. These are just all on my desk at the moment, <laughs> but Hungry, which is by Eve uh, Thoreau-Paul. And that really looks at, you know, how do we find connection and meaning in food yes. and how can we use that and tap that in to bring about change? Yeah. And so looking at the connection between climate and food and how do, how, how we're going about it a little bit wrong, you yes. know, but why are people going to avocado toast for 30, $35 for breakfast every day? Um, and, and is that bad or is that actually good? And how do you yeah. think about that? So, yeah. Is it, is it, um, is it a challenge with all these inputs going into something like, you know the UN um, um, summit next year, and then and then countries you know coming out and say we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and then and then you know I feel that bipartisan politics doesn't happen as much anymore because at the end of the day, like I would I would I want your input on this, but there needs to be policy reform around this area for it to change fundamentally as well as great organizations like yourself doing fantastic work, putting pressure on, putting pressure, educating, you know, um, uh, the public. Is it, is it a challenge that you have these fantastic summits, 15 year goals, and then you get government change and, and maybe a change in policy or direction on things like agriculture or things like climate change research or, you know, food insecurity, um, you know, at either, you know, federal, state or local level, Paul, like, is, is it hard to sort of play, you know, on both, on both sides and try to affect government change? Yeah, I mean, it is. Um, I think, I think that, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is very challenging to do that. Mm. Um, Because what often happens is, like the food systems are are super complex. So they require complexity to fix them. Do you know Mm. what I mean? Like they require multi-pronged approaches. Exactly. When it, when you start to simplify things down, governments go, Oh, okay. So we need a sugar tax or we need this, you know? And so the, what often happens is the original intent gets simplified into a a very narrow response, which then can have unintended consequences. Yeah. Great point. 
Um, and so, you know, even if you think about the big game changers of the past, like things like the Green Revolution. Mm. So the Green Revolution, Norman Borlaug, you know, at the time when he started looking at this, there was there was food insecurity in every part of the world. There would yes. be lean seasons in between harvest times mm-hmm. and, and not enough food produced globally to feed everyone. And so Norman looked at how do we accelerate, like he had a very clear focus, how do we accelerate growth? And so they, you know, I think it's something like f- managed to get rice production in India five times, you know, wow. and all of a sudden you just get then, that brings price down, yes. increases volume. Yes. Now, part of the reason we have a lack of biodiversity is because we got so efficient at producing certain crops at, mm. at, at price. So there's this like swings and roundabouts. Yes. Now, that's an unintended consequence. Should we have not done it? Absolutely not. Mm. Could he have done it differently? Maybe, but it's a pretty damn impressive goal you know to what he did and achieved and so i believe you know in looking at that so when we think about change it's going to have to be these big initiatives but it's also going to have to be looking for things that achieve more than one thing yeah and and so i'm you know often that's why we've kind of been playing with this idea of people and planet mm. rather than just like this is planet friendly and this is mm. people friendly and yep. as if that's a choice yes yeah, because the people can't function on a planet yeah. that doesn't same, support same them. Thing. And the planet, who cares if we've got a great planet with no people? Like, <laughs> yes. so I kind of look at just basic ways of saying, does this help? You know, mm-hmm. is it? You know, is a plant-based alternative burger that's trying to help you give a better climate impact, adding more calories and less nutrient dense? Yes. Well, then, okay, I made the plant a better choice for the planet. But, but I'm choice myself. harming myself yes. in the process. Well, that yeah. doesn't make sense to me. So I'm yeah. like, when I talk to companies that are working on that, I say, you should be doing both. And, mm. and you should be looking at maybe three or four areas where you're actually kicking goals. And that's yeah. real innovation. Don't tell me about, wow, this saves, you know, this has this climate impact and then feel good and go, okay, we've achieved it. Well, yes. Because, you, you know, you're transforming people from eating this to eating this. It's, you know, it's around nutrient density is another one. You know, one of the things that recently we found is, you know, you try and get people to eat broccoli, for example, just Mm -hmm. as an example. Mm -hmm. And then you find the broccoli, because of the way it's produced, has no nutrients in it. And you're like, (laughs) oh, you know, uh, because it's been stored forever. And it's been, you know, uh, or the way it's been cooked, you know. So this is where we've got to be much more complex. It's not just one size fits all. So... Do you think it's up to government to then, because we're really just talking about education, right? Like as part of that, we're talking about education and, and policy. Like, do you think it's up to government then to, to really put more money into and more and more effort into the food in the, the, the food system, the agricultural system, everything which hits that and actually make some common threads and a common, common narrative that we're going to talk about as a society. And we're going to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to, you know, potentially just do farming this way because this is important and we're going to support farmers to actually make sure they can do that agriculturally properly for yield and for and for nutrition density and all that kind of stuff because we know that if we feed our community well, then that's going to have so many other positive attributes for a society. Like Yeah. Look, I, I think it's I think it's having a common vision. Yeah. So what's the food system for? So if we like, if you think the food system's for driving the economy, or if you think the food system's for people's health, or yes. if you think the food system's for driving agricultural, you know, like depending on what you your vision is, mm. depends on what we'll prioritize. Yes. And so I agree that yeah, the narrative needs to have a common vision, mm-hmm. and then it needs to be informed by science on how to achieve that vision. Yeah. Totally and agree. so, you know, there was a report that just came out recently um, called the Series 2030 report. And it was a, a study on what are we going to need to do to achieve SDG 2. Yes. Um, and it was funded uh, funded by the German government and Gates Foundation and released in the, in Nature in mm-hmm. a series of articles. And it's a, it's a really interesting um, report. Mm-hmm. But it talks about the fact that if we're to get back on track, we're going to have to see a doubling of overseas development assistance and wow. and where that money's got to go, which is 14 billion more a year wow. between now and 2030. Mm. Um, 
And, and the majority of that needs to go in at the farm level, at the smallholder farm level. Um, but also it needs to go into research. So there's kind of models out there. We need to be looking at and driving our agricultural research and our science now for where we want food to be in 10 years time. Yes. Because where we are now is where it was 10 to 20 years back. Yes. And so, you know, there's groups like the CGIR, which is a research, a set of research networks around the world with mm. thousands of scientists working on climate adaptation you know what's crops that will grow better in certain climates that are better for human health yeah and so we have to invest in the future if we really want to shift this yes through research we need to in invest in the present at the farm level to help people to bring in new technologies that already exist around water around um, using more improved crops, improve, you know, improving yields yep. so that you're actually working at the same level to achieve more. Yes. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and, and there's a lot of science there, but you know, you've still got in different parts of the world, um, people are still using cows to plow fields, yeah. like even just simple stuff like access to tractors and yeah. mechani mechanization mm. is still a long way off in many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And, and so there's, it's not simple. It's not just complex technologies, it's access issues. Yes. Um, and then it's also around knowledge, you know? Mm. So if you have, like I was talking to somebody who um, is doing a project that works on a tech platform to work with cattle and management of cattle in India. Well, wow. if you can think of India and cows, there's yes. obviously a connection there. Yes. But he provides veterinary services through a web-based app application pl platform to improve the product production of milk per cow. Wow. And it's just simple by just certain veterinary access, advice access yes. via a mobile platform, which is super simple and effective. Wow. He can increase the yield of these cows dramatically, thus their income, reduce their emissions. Mm -hmm. And so there's like technological interventions out there that can really be help us to, to move this forward. And yes. what we have to do is find ways to accelerate them. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, that's almost a show in itself. If we talked about technology and, and food, <laughs> um, um, my last question, um, yeah, I know, sorry. I know <laughs> I know some people you could talk to about that. <laughs> oh, oh, please let me know so we can we can talk about it on the show. I'd love to. Um, what um, my last question before I let you go, Paul, is um, you know we talked about some of the things you're you're working on next year in 2021. Like what what projects are you most excited to be working with uh, in 2021 at this stage? Yeah, I mean, so one of them I I mentioned is the UN Food Systems Summit. I think this is a really key opportunity for 2021. Yes. To really bring together actors um, and really drive and punch through at the, at the global level some new areas that we should invest in. Yes. So it's like having the right dialogue, getting the focus on that, and then finding countries which want to take that forward. Yes. And individuals and organisations and companies to make commitments around it. Um, so I think that's really, really critical. Mm -hmm. There's also, um, I think as we start to build back um, kind of and think outside of the post-COVID world, you know, this year has been very much about how do we deal with this new reality we're in. Yes. I think as we build out of that, there's an opportunity for rethinking about the connection, the invisible elements of the food system that mm -hmm. we previously didn't know about. Yeah. You know, the connection between nutrition and human health mm -hmm. um, is really key. We, you know, people, it's very easy to forget that, you know, COVID came from a food system problem. Yeah. Um, it came out of a market system where we bought, we pushed it to the brink yes. on the connections with nature. Mm. And, and, and so if we don't take this seriously, it actually undermines everything else. 100%. Um, you know, all the economic conversations, all the conversations about civil liberties, all of that, like let's sort out our food yeah. and get that right so that there's people in the world not pressed into these extremes to try and feed themselves yes um and let's look at food safety food security all these issues so i think you know as we do that alongside the food system summit i think that's really great the other thing that's coming up you know late next year which people have kind of forgotten is the world expo in dubai oh yeah and so i think that also creates another platform for kind of 
post-October going into 2022 of how do we talk about, come together and celebrate the diversity that we have globally, but also think about food security as an element within that and and think about the, 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 the richness of our food, but also how do we connect that back to the climate and you know, there's other events, the Climate um, Summit, there's a range of events happening next year, which are also quite significant. Yes. Um, and so we're super excited about that and how we bring chefs into that conversation mm. and how we bring others into that conversation. Mm-hmm. It's going um, to be a big year, no doubt. I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens next for the organisation and um, feel really privileged to have uh, yet another really great and enlightening conversation with you, Paul. So thanks so much for your time. Um, yeah. what's the best way that people can find out about everything you're doing so they can, they can be involved and be part of the conversation with you? Yeah. So, um, I would say, um, obviously on social media, you know, follow, um, I'm on social media, Paul Newnham, mm-hmm. um, on most platforms. Um, and there's also Chef's Manifesto. So if you look at the Chef's Manifesto, um, mm-hmm. we share a lot of content, a lot of ideas through, mm-hmm. particularly on Instagram for the Chef's Manifesto. If you're mm-hmm. on Twitter, the SDG2 Advocacy Hub is always sharing what's going on on the global scene and getting the reports out there. Yep. Um, and then Good Food for All um, is also another platform. So we have a few channels. They all have slightly different personalities yep. according to different audiences. So depending on who's listening, um that's where i would suggest beautiful and as always um those are linked up in the show notes as well as the fantastic books that paul talked about on the podcast so thanks so much for the conversation paul i've really enjoyed it no thank you thanks for having me Right, guys i hope you really enjoyed that episode of the open pantry podcast as always thank you so much for tuning in now as i was hinting at the start of the podcast we were talking about restoke which is a fantastic back of house automation platform based here in melbourne uh just fantastic piece of tech that's been developed uh last year it's all about automating and delegating procedures and compliance Ordering, uh, ordering and inventory management, prep runs, all those things at the back of the house, which we don't love to talk about, but we know as hospitality owners that are so, so critical to make sure that our venues run successfully. And on top of that, it has a live food costing system, which is just fantastic. I've seen it in person. Now, it's all about giving you the time to actually run your business much more effectively and see all these things live in your business when you're not there. So I know that's going to be really critically important as we rebuild this industry. Now, for the Open Pantry listeners, you're actually able to get one month free subscription on top of a normal 14 days trial. So that's about six weeks to use this platform and figure out if you actually like it. I know you actually will. So all you have to do is go to restoke.ai slash the open pantry. So that's R-E-S-T-O-K-E dot A-I slash the open pantry. Super easy. Check it out. Uh, you'll see everything you need to know about the platform itself. Uh, I know you're going to love it. Uh, and let me know what you think as well. Like uh, uh, this is a fantastic product. I don't talk about products very much on the show and uh, and these guys are just uh, amazing what they're doing right now. So that's why I want to support them. So check it out and see what you think and uh, I'll talk to you on the next podcast. <laughs>